Welcome to Med Talks, Metro's all-new podcast series on Spotify. We'll be inviting guests from within and out with the medical profession to talk about topics somewhat related to medicine that are hopefully educational, but most importantly, will give us a few laughs. So please enjoy our first ever episode where we talk careers, consultancy and comedy with none other than the head of the medical school, Professor John Paul Leach. John Paul's been in charge of the medical for how long? Uh, just coming up for five years. Five years. Five years. And you trained at Glasgow, if that's correct, yeah? Oh, yes. Born in Glasgow, school in Cumbernauld, uni in Glasgow, etc., etc. yep. So we did a wee search on, uh, online, and what mostly you find when you type in Professor Leach is lots of YouTube videos, and then they all start with a, with a joke at a conference. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about, is journey through comedy that you gave <laughs> at the MVLS event. So do you want to give us a wee intro on how you... Yeah, so, uh, yeah. So, so how did all this start? Well, the Medshare is probably a good way to start, actually, because my first ever time on stage was actually uh, the Medshare Review in fourth year. A guy called Mike McCurdy, he's actually uh, a surgeon out in Paisley, and he was president of the Medshare, and he decided to bring back the review because there'd been no review for about five, ten years. And uh, every year had 20 minutes to do, and, and I uh, helped write the fourth year sketch. And I found myself on stage at an absolutely heaving debating hall. It was absolutely mobbed, and it was just fabulous. And, and I remember standing there thinking, oh, hold on a minute, I quite like this. This is, uh, this is really good. Um, and, and so that kind of got me into the way of things. And I, I was active in the year club, so I spoke at the, uh, the, the final year dinner. Um, and catastrophic speech, but anyway, I'll, I'll, that's another story. Um, but I really enjoyed making speeches. So by the time everyone left uni and they were getting married and everything else, they said, well, will you come and do the MC or will you come and, and make a speech? And so I kind of uh, got into the way of it and I enjoyed preparing for it and enjoyed doing it. Um, such that uh, 1990, just as the alternative comedy scene was beginning to blossom around the UK, Glasgow opened its, uh, its first uh, comedy club down in Blackfriars, a pub in Blackfriars and Bell Street down in Merchant City, and they've got a wee basement there, and I went along to do uh, an open spot, and uh, it seemed to go okay, and I got another booking, and another booking, and another booking, and it, just at that time, uh, I'd begun a research job, so I'd done my register, my JHO, uh, SHO register, got a research job, so I wasn't doing on-call, and so I started to do some gigs at night and um, it kind of took off from there. So I had a very uh, a great fun for uh, six years doing it, off and on. It was good. So that was back at the time when you had to do research before you could progress to consulting, is that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very much the, the thing there. And I, I had no, let me be clear here, I had no interest in doing research. This was a box I had to tick. And uh, I was doing a general medicine in the Department of Medicine in the Western. And I thought I was going to maybe do a general medicine or geriatrics or something. And I just wanted to get some research done to, to, to see how that would go. And I was offered uh, a job in a clinical pharmacology research job. And it happened to be clinical pharmacology of the new anti-epileptic drugs. And uh, so doing that, I thought, right, I'll do this for 18 months ditch the research, come out, and then just start back to being a proper doctor again, um, as, it, as I lasted about four and a half years doing the research, which was which was partly because a couple of projects fell through, mm. uh, but also partly because it was just a, a great fun, and, and at the time, uh, surprisingly productive for me, and, and I, I 
really enjoyed it. We had some great connections in the, the epilepsy unit in the Western Infirmary, and it, it seemed to go quite well. Um, was you working with was it Doctor Sills? Because I remember yeah. when I heard that in that event, and I think oh, he he was teaching at teaching my pharmacology intercal this year on epileptic drugs. Yes, Graham, great, yeah. great Graham and I, great Graham was just at a brand new postdoc at that point, uh, and it was really useful for me because I'd never really done any lab work at all other than the practical settings, and and, and to get a, a a lesson on how to think like a scientist was was really useful, um, and to do that and also to get taught on writing. You know, you think you can write. And then all of a sudden, someone looks at a manuscript and realizing they've kind of pulled it uh, at arm's length between two fingers as if this is the worst thing they've ever seen. So, so learning how to write and learning how to uh, think like a scientist were, were, were really important. Actually, the and that's where, is this where your sort of neurology career then started from, was the epilepsy stuff? Absolutely, because by the time I came out uh, uh, in 1996, I thought, well, if I'm going to take this epilepsy lap further, which I'd quite like to do, it's worked for me quite well. I'm going to have to go back and do neurology. So at that point, it was 10 years post-graduation. Um, and I'd never done neurology before, so I had to scour around uh, looking for a job. And I did a couple of, you know, knockbacks in Newcastle and Edinburgh and various places. Nope, you'll need to go away and be an SHO in neurology before we'll consider you for a registrar post. And it just so happened that I knew the team in, in Liverpool had done some work with them, and they had a job came up. And it was the only job in the country that was joint for neurology and clinical neurophysiology. And I think that's why not many people went for it. Um, and, and, and I did and, and happened to get it. And that, that was just perfect because, of course, neurophysiology allowed me to do some EEG work as well and do the, the, the clinical neurology work. So I had six, uh, six and a half extremely happy years in Liverpool. Um, it, was, it was great. Uh, a good time down there, a lot of good friends down there still. And came back up to Glasgow uh, in about 2002. So when you were down in Liverpool, were you still uh, trying on the comedy scene down down there? Do you know, it was funny. I uh, My last ever gig was with Ford Kieran in, in the Tron Theatre in oh, yeah. November 1996. So I'd moved down to Liverpool in the September and we already had this booking. And I, there was a bit of me just knew that I'd done my dash uh, with it. Uh, I, we did some great nights. We did some fabulous times. Um, but I just knew it was finished. I had four kids at that point. Um, I had a job that was involved in a one and four on call. Um, the thought of trying to dovetail in some comedy, I was, I was doing some writing at that point as well. So I, I carried that on and walked away from the comedy. Uh, and this is where, you know, your career takes you places you don't realise, because of course, I continued doing the lecturing for, for epilepsy and doing invited talks, various things and that. So, so and, and that I found was my way to show off. And, and, and I think the skills that you use in giving a, a talk are in many ways very similar to the ones you use uh, when you're doing a comedy gig. They're actually very similar to the ones you use when you're having meetings with families or you know, having meetings with patients. It's all about communication. And, and if you can do one, you can transpose a lot of the skills onto others. Now, there are some unique. You stand in front of a group of 300 angry final year students, you know, because something's happened and they have to redo an exam or something. You know, you have to communicate with them properly and you have to do so in a way that's A, human, B, clear. Um, and hopefully at times, you know, when you're given lectures and times when it's not difficult, do so with a bit of humour. And, 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 and I think it makes a... A difference when you can do that. So, so it's all about communication, and I think so much of being a doctor is. That's why, in the traditions, kind of 
dying off a wee bit now. When I was at uni, uh, when you had dementia ball, you would always have one or two consultants standing up to speak, and it was always different consultants. And the the after dinner speaker consultant is much rarer now than it used to be. It used to be a, a, a common thing. Um, and as I say, I, I, it, it all boils down to communication and, and using slightly different facets and slightly different occasions, but but it, but it's all the same thing. So with your comedy. Um, was there a particular theme or style that you went for? Um, I suppose the longest uh, spell I did, uh, well, sorry, the most prolific spell I had was, was doing the double acts with, with four Um and, and it was really just talking about things we'd seen in the news or things we'd seen on TV, and we developed a couple of sketch-type things that we put in. Uh, news for Neds was one of the things we used to do, where somebody would read out the news and the, you know, towards would do the sort of Neds interpretation of the news. Um, so lots of sketch type things, and and uh, yeah, but mostly observation, you know. Yeah. Stories from the papers are, are clip bits from uh, clip bits from from newspapers and use them. And so in your talk, you also mentioned how you met quite a few famous people through uh, the comedy scene. Yeah, because of course it, 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 we used to come up and do tours, you know, your Eddie Izzards and your Alan Davis and Harry Hill and all these. So they'd come up and do tours around. So what they'd do, you'd do uh, Aberdeen on a Friday, Glasgow and Edinburgh on the Saturday and the D on the Sunday. So uh, myself and Ford uh, together or singly would often be part of that gig. So you would kind of drive them around and stay over and stuff. So you so kind of met a lot of these guys. And of its time in the late 80s and early 1000s, um, any game show, you know, the kids would be like, that. oh, do, do you know him? Yeah, I knew him. Like, oh, how do you know him? Oh, yeah, we think it's kind of weird off it now. You know, there's a whole new generation come on. But I, I do remember doing some gigs with, with Frankie Boyle just as he was starting off. And uh, you, you knew he was going to, you, you can tell immediately, you, you remember the faces that came through, you knew which ones were going to absolutely hit the heights and, and, and which ones might have a, you know, more sustained but perhaps quieter career. That's, uh, to be fair, that's like my mum and my dad, because they worked in the theatre and they did the exact same. Like, oh, I work with her and I've worked with him. And especially, I find it so weird, like, work with Brian Cox, Amanda Holden, David Tennant. It's mad. I, my mum was actually, like, knocked out by Amanda Holden's husband at the time when she was doing a show. What was that? <laughs> he was supposed to catch this prop that would come off the stage. He's a famous guy. I've forgotten his name now. And uh, he threw it off at the wrong time. And right. my mum straight in the head, and he's got a present from her and Amanda to say sorry. That would be that would be Les Dennis, wouldn't it? Yes, it was Les Dennis. That was it. Yeah, I, I'm of an age where I remember these things. But anyway, it's uh, it's just it's just funny, like how how these things uh, come about. Um, and especially when I obviously in your talk now, we don't have the video on us of that one of you with Robert Carlyle and what was the movie called? <laughs> Carla's Song. There's a wee story about that, Luz. So, so there I was sitting in the, the epilepsy unit uh, one afternoon and the phone went and I picked up the phone and it was uh, Ken Loach. And he said, hi, it's Ken Loach here. I'm thinking, nah, don't do you think so? He said, yeah, I, I've been giving your name for someone. And what had happened was that it was actually for Kieran was going for an audition for, for Carla's song. And he, he'd said, I suppose I want to do, just chat away with him. So is that you done then with the audition? He said, I just want one more part to, to audition for. I just need to find a hospital doctor. And Ford said, well, I know a hospital doctor who's got an equity card. And, and he gave him my number. So he phoned me and I went along the next day. And uh, he said, so have you done any acting before? I said, no. He said, how did you get your equity card? Stand up comedy. Right, okay. 
I'll tell you what, just sit there and just let's see how this goes. So I'm sitting in this room, actually. It was over in the old Knightswood Hospital, as, uh, taking over for the, 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 the shoot. And um, I said, yeah, okay, fair enough. And about five minutes later, uh, some woman bursts in. Listen, you, what are you doing? I brought my boy to you last week, and now he's unwell. He's in that hospital, and you said he was fine. What are you going to do about it? And what immediately struck me was that without even thinking about it, you went into doctor mode. Right, let's just sit down and have a chat about this. And I think, we'll, you know, let's, because when we met last week, it was, a, and immediately, and it made me realise actually a lot of what we do, I'm not trying to be pejorative about medicine, not that you're acting or pretending that you care or anything, but a lot of it is adopting a role and responding to other people's emotions. So I talked earlier on about the, the different communication styles, and that's absolutely one of them. Dealing with distressed, angry, upset, elated relatives is, is you know these are things you have to do and immediately with no acting training whatsoever all of a sudden you find yourself doing a you know performing a role which is trying to calm down an irate relative who's furious upset scared over what's just happened to her son despite the fact that you said he was he was fine a week ago um and nobody had ever sat you down and said, right, this is what you do when someone's upset, you open your body and do it. But, you know, we all do it. We all just learn it. Um, and, and that's what happened then. So, of course, he's sitting in the corner watching all this with a smile on his face. Um, and then he then said, well, this thing, that's fine then. Well, if you want to play the part of the hospital doctor, that's okay. And then, of course, so that was fine. And you're thinking, oh, great, I can do this. You know, the doctors are fabulous. They can do anything. And then on the day of the shoot, realised that actually I could not do it. It was just really <laughs> difficult. And, you know, these guys deserve every penny they get because I don't know how they do it. There's me spending all day being a hospital doctor, dealing with relatives, and then all of a sudden there's three cameras on you. You're dressed up with a kind of name badge on it. It's funny enough, said Frank Boyle, but anyway, that's another story. Um, so you're there with a name badge on it. You're in what was the, the Southern General Maternity Hospital that had taken over the top floor. And in a place that I was familiar with, in a role I was familiar with, I could not look as if I would ever have done that in my life. And people were looking at it thinking, who's this ham trying to pretend he's a doctor? No, that this is actually what I do. Uh, so anyway, so I, I used to I used to absolutely cringe with embarrassment. It came out, funny enough, uh, all these princes came together. It came out the month I moved down to Liverpool. And, you know, I remember walking into the outpatient department uh, in about my second week there or third week there. And someone came up and said, oh, have you got a twin? I said, no. And then they were all going, told you, told you, told you it was him. I'm not doing the accent, but told you it was him. pictures <laughs> and go, oh my God, look who that is. Um, but anyway, I, but I, I I could not do it and I couldn't look convincing at all. It used to absolutely embarrass me. But now it just makes me, you know, 24 years. I'm giving up being embarrassed about things that happened 24 years ago. But uh, yeah. Do you, still, do, you, do you have a copy of uh, Carla's song in your house? Joe bizarrely, I bought a copy purely to uh, purely to get that clip for the the, the, the MBLS live, and I, I hadn't seen it for years. So and I, the kids hadn't seen it for years. So we sat around and had a, a couple of drinks and watched it during one of the lockdown nights. So <gasps> two hoots of laughter at this version of me about five stone heavier with hair. Um, anyway, so. And yeah, oh no, I have to say when I saw that and it, the full head of hair, I think I was just got smacked. We weren't all born like this. <laughs> it, was like a, it was like a level up from, I don't know if you know that we've still got that neurology teaching video still goes about. Yeah. And yeah. like 
there's more, but this one was like yeah. full on. And, and, and of course, it's, it's three distinct phases because, of course, the, uh, the, the, the Carla song was me in, in the mid-1990s and the, the teaching video was me just as I've become a consultant, actually, early thousands. And now there's, uh, now there's me now, so it's uh, another 18 years on. So it's d d distinct phases. But it, there's an important point, though, Lewis, and, and um, Malcolm and I have spoken about this. I know Malcolm Shepherd when he spoke to one of the groups about his career. And I think it's really important that at no point did anyone ever say to me or Malcolm or Matthew, right, this is this is where your career is going to go. This is what you're going to do. And, you know, the long periods of uncertainty and doubt and rejection and the jobs that you don't get sometimes end up, you know, a huge sense of relief at some of the jobs I didn't get. Um, but it's, you know, I think sometimes students look at you and think, well, it's all right for you because look where you are. So, yeah, but that, there's a whole host of rejection, upset and stumbles and mess ups that have gone into this 33 years of career, uh, 34 now, years of career. And, and, and no one ever would have uh, guaranteed anything with us. And, and that's why, for instance, all the upset over um, the foundation programme thing, well, what if I don't get the job that I want to get? Well, your, your, your foundation, your jobs don't make your career and they don't break your career. You know, and in fact, often, I, one of the best things that happened to me was going out as a resident to Inverclyde. Um, you get more time. Um, people can tolerate slightly off-the-wall personalities if you're, if you're okay at what you do. Um, you probably get, get to do more under a wee bit less supervision. Um, and, and so it was one of the best things that happened to me. So, so where you end up as your FY, doesn't determine where you end up as your registrar or what specialty you end up in. And, and it was the old thing, your, your degree gets you your first job and then after that, it's up to you. Um, and, and I keep trying to say to students, no one, when I look at some of the people in my year who ended up being uh, professors of uh, oncology, uh, academics, they were not the people who had a strong academic record at uni. <laughs> When I spoke at that in VLS Live, I, was, I, I don't want to discourage anyone from working hard at uni. Of course I don't. But you've got to remember, at university, you get rewarded for repeating what other people have told you. You know, in your career, your postgraduate career, you, your reward, if you like, your progression depends on what, what you do for yourself. And yes, of course, you have to learn the basics. Yes, you, of course, you have to undergo training. But if you're talking about research, if you're talking about academic progress, if you're talking about mentorship, if you're talking about uh, being a recognised trainer, th these things don't come from doing what people tell you to do. Uh, they're, they're attributes that you grow within yourself and you, you, you adopt and you, you foster. Um, so it's, it, it's trying to say to someone, just because you may be in the fifth or sixth or seventh centile of the uni, that that doesn't give any prediction we already know that to get into uni you've got to be very much on the right hand side of school attainment so everybody's capable of this just some people do it differently and some people are great at taking a whole load of facts and and repeating them and and some people are better at maybe taking less of the facts but actually putting them in context and some people are great at asking questions when do you get awarded in uni for asking questions when did you get awarded in uni for designing things or doing something differently? 
you don't really get rewarded for that. So yes, I'm keen that everyone takes on board all the learning opportunities we've got, and of course all the behaviours and the attributes and the skills and, 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 and things, of course, they're really important. But no one should walk out thinking, well, I've just got a bog standard degree. No, you've got a degree from one of the top medical schools in the world, and, and, and you should feel that you're able to meld out whether you want to, you know, wherever you want to go and whatever you want to do, you have you're pluripotent when you walk out of fear of that scroll and you're not that's not determined by the prizes or the merit awards or the you know the certificates of merit or anything like that it's it's what you do for yourself in the subsequent four five 35 years i think that's some great advice because i was you kind of beat me too i was going to ask for if you got any advice for students and on, on their careers and stuff but I think, yeah, I think you're definitely right. I think we, we worry a lot about grades and we think that determines our our, um, our career progression. And, all, and obviously that dr drama at the moment with the UK FPO and everyone says, oh, what's the point? And, um, you know, obviously within the BMA uh, sphere of influence, I'm obviously pushing for that to be changed. But the thing to remind students is that actually, no, that, that's just the start of getting in. That intercal degree with, is with you the rest of your career, yeah. and you can keep saying, "I've got this." And Absolutely. I think you're, you're worth more then than it is in your end. Yeah, and and you know, the, the, of course, there's an opportunity cost. You're graduating a year later, so your friends are maybe working for a year more. But the fact is, there's the opportunity if you take it that you the stats or the questions or even the lab work or the personal connections that these things can can pay dividends. You can get on without it. But it's just, you know, we're not here to just get through quickly. And, and I, I, I mentioned this in the talk. I worry when people say to me, I just want to come out here with my honours degree and then I'm happy. Whoa, 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 whoa. hold on a second here. The honours degree it should be the side effect of what you do. It should be the point of what you do. And, you know, coming out with a non-honours degree with a group of friends who will sustain you when things get tough, with the ability to have other aspects to your life that will sustain you when things get tough with a good hinterland uh, are much more important because actually if you're five years out of uni and you're not really happy and you're not progressing well no one cares that you get an honours degree if you get a non-honours degree and you've maybe produced a paper or you've helped out with a really difficult case or you've helped design a service or you've you know run a rota you've done some mentorship people really care about that much more than they do about how you went you know how how your quality of degree is so really important for for, for students to realize that and, and i'm delighted that people you know i think people can sometimes like looking up at the wall and see the certificate there great brilliant but but the, you know waving that in somebody's face when you're 50 you know that don't impress me much as shania twain would say it, it doesn't work and do it for yourself if, if that's what makes you happy and that's what you want to do then fine but the notion that it'll then get you to be a consultant in cardiac surgery or a professor of cardiac surgery in the mail in 40 years time and that you'll be really happy because of it it's it's not working it, it will not work can i just say one thing you, of course incidentally edit any of this out but if you, if you don't want to but the, the reason the ukfpo thing came in and it feels like an entirely random process sometimes and you know what i suspect there might not be an entire accident in that because of course in the old days you'll not believe this in the old days lots of people finished year three with their house job sorted they will have gone in placement in a, a, a general medical unit and some will have said well you seem like a, a reasonable bloke or you know you've worked really hard uh, would you like to come and work here yeah well when they released the post 
you just drop me a, a letter and I'll appoint you to phone. Loads of people finished year three with their house job sorted. And if your dad was doctor or your dad was professor or your uncle was, you know, Buffy Johnson over at the Royal, your chances of getting a job are much higher. So the UK FPO thing is not perfect, but the old system wasn't perfect either. And for those of us who came into medicine without any relatives, you kind of felt all at sea a wee bit. Um, was it terrible? No, it wasn't, because the, the, the advantage of it was that if you really did like a unit or you really did like a specialty, you could say to someone, well, is there anything I can do? You know, I'll do a locum in the unit or I'll do something in the unit. And then they knew you, knew you them. And if you went to work there, that's fine. And so when it worked, it was great. But there was definitely a, a there, were, there were openings for nepotism there. And that's why the UK FPO thing came in. So it's was okay. to that. And I, I'm not saying it's perfect but it's kind of better than getting a job because you know someone. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so, uh, and in some ways, one of the ideas floated at the Medical Schools Council was that we just randomise it. You put your name in a hat and then you pull it out and say, well, well done, Lewis, you're going to Inverclyde. Oh, John Paul, you're going to Shetland. Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, it's the logical extension of it doesn't matter where you work. But of course, then you've got people, you know, maybe... In some ways, the UK FPO is a halfway house between a bit of choice but a bit of randomness. Incidentally, I'm not arguing it's perfect. I'm, I'm far from it. Um, and I can see why students will be so frustrated. They work so hard at uni to get the honours and the certificate of merit. And then all of a sudden, this uh, SGT exam has a huge bearing on where they go. But I'm with you in this one. Chill out, guys. You'll end up somewhere roughly in the region that you want to go. Most people get first or second choice of region. Um, so you end up roughly in the region you want to go. M maybe that's about all we should promise or we should care about. But it's easy for me to say that. And there should, all, incidentally, always be special circumstances. There'll always be people who will have to, for care and responsibilities or health reasons, about, will have to be in a hospital or a part of a region. I accept that. And we'd want to keep that, whatever happens. Yeah, I think uh, I think the biggest concern is just that people have already started and it's like being told under false premises how much their yeah. degree would be worth. And Absolutely. I know, I know a lot of students as well who have said, well, I'm from a widening participation background. I've gone and worked hard to have the money to put myself through another year. And now they're saying, oh, we're taking it away to help me. That's just not fair. So, and Incidentally, no one's pretending that the timing of this was in any way right. That was just ridiculous, and I, and I don't care. It might be the best decision in the world, but to impose it halfway through someone's intercal year, it's just ridiculous. And and, and how thoughtless can you be? Sorry, I, I don't know where this is going, but anyway, it's thoughtless, and and uh, I, I can't believe that they did that. Away from some medical politics, and back onto the last few questions. So one I've been kind of keen to ask each clinician that we talk to is their most rewarding and their most embarrassing moment of their career if you can think of, of uh, any of those moments? I, I, I do some, I'm not bad at ideas, but I'm not a great completer finisher. And you, you mentioned this, I think when I, I just started at the Western Infirmary Department of Medicine, in those days, um, it, it was just a very austere environment. And, I, and I, I don't do well with, you know, uptight things anyway. So I've been asked to do this talk on a research project looking at visual fields, we're doing endocrinology thing, looking at visual fields in people with pituitary things, and they developed this wee chart on how to work, how to, you know, the patient could assess their own visual fields. Um, it, 
unsurprisingly went nowhere and it was clear that it was going nowhere and there were no results and and so, so they said well you speak at our tuesday meeting on this and i said yeah yeah that's fine anyway so over the weekend i was preparing it and this was the days we had to write out your own acetates and everything else so i'd spent the the, the weekend writing out acetates and it was clear that this project was a dead duck it was going nowhere with nothing and i wasn't going to stand up and present some dead duck so instead i had another project that i thought would be really good looking at free radical activity in, in patients with diabetes um, and I, I drafted up this thing and I thought this is just this is absolutely on point and uh, I turned up on the Tuesday and I'd been on call during the day so I hadn't seen anyone else turned up on the day and as I opened the door the direct oh no no it's, it's not there it's in the lecture theatre and the, the uh, a big ophthalmological society had turned up uh, because they wanted to see how this project was going and uh, the professor at the time John Reed, was absolutely furious and the ophthalmologist were in half and got up and walked out um, and it was just awful and, and the, the half that didn't walk out were sitting there in a half because it was five o'clock on Tuesday night and they listened to some guy droning on about free radicals and diabetes it was just awful and it was it's my own fault I should have you know, dealt with the project earlier. I should, if it was, if it was a partner, it was a dead duck. I was going to speak about something else. I should have known that earlier. I should have made it clear to everyone. It was entirely my fault. And the only other embarrassing moments I've had is, is, and this will not surprise me, given the nature of the chat today, is spending too long in talks. And I do remember once almost being strong-armed from the stage at the Royal College in Glasgow, <laughs> um, and I thought I'd been speaking for about 10, 15 minutes. And it was about an hour and ten minutes into it. It was just awful, it, and I and I, I, my stomach still clenches when I think in both those moments. But the one where the the president woke, walked on stage, effectively grabbed the controller out of my hand, said, "I think we're done. Thanks very much." <laughs> and the, the overrunning is something that I I have been prone to do. So I, I try and always follow the rules now. Of I, I, I slide a minute and no more. Um, and, and if you do that, it's quite difficult to overrun by too much. Usually just a wee bit, but that's fine. And rewarding? Um, okay, I, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that uh, if, when I left uni, if you told me I was going to be a consultant neurologist, I would have, you know, well, there were only four neurologists in Glasgow at that point, and neurology was not a big specialty the general physician saw epilepsy and stroke and Parkinson's and all these things. So there weren't many neurologists. So I would have been astonished at how I would ever have ended up being a neurologist first off. But if you told me I'd been working with medical school, that would, uh, the, my colleagues in Alpha 86 are still highly amused by that, I have to say. It's not a role I think that you would have uh, highlighted me as, as being a candidate for. Um, but yet it's been that, it has probably been, one of the best jobs I've had and to do that and continue the clinical work has been uh, an absolute joy um, and, and it's been a, a huge privilege. Well that's lovely to hear. Uh, I actually can go with the fact that the president actually had to just take you off the stage. That's oh honestly it was terrible, brilliant. it was terrible and, and the worst thing was it was a it was a, it was a prize given uh, thing so it was a, the, the, uh, a, a lectureship that you put a, an, an abstract in and um, I so there was a big dinner afterwards where there were there were two or three other medal winners at the thing and the, 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 the before the dinner was my talk and it was just awful it 
it was just absolutely that. So I'm still cringing now thinking of uh, Norman Mackay, basically. <laughs> Red card, off pal, and people were sleeping and all. It was just, anyway. No, never, I've, I've overrun before, uh, since then, but never to that extent. I've had a bit of insight to it. But it's, it, one of the pressures and, and the lesson I learned then was, actually, I wanted to give this talk and make it the best talk I possibly could. And I thought that meant cramming in all the data that I had from my four and a bit years do, doing the MD. And I thought it meant being absolutely exact and on point. But people don't want exact and on point. They, they, they want messages, they want stories. Are things getting better? Are things getting worse? Where are the gaps? How can we improve things from now? That, that's what they want. And whether the graph, is, whether the R value is 0.9 or 0.84, really people don't care about. They, they, they want stories and messages. And if you can hook them in and persuade them about exactly how they can uh, join that story or help out with it or take things further forward, that, that that's the thing. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. I, I thought I had to more data and be more exact. And that's not, not, not what you want. Well, thank you very much for your time for talking about your life your, and your uh, trials and tribulations of uh, getting into comedy. Um, you ever consider coming back to Metro Review and doing a bit of stand-up for, for the students? Uh, I would, uh, yes. Um, uh, yeah, I would probably near the end of my time is heading to go to school. <laughs> and then, then I could be absolutely honest. About <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <Mind> drop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, I, I would think on it. And, and as I say, the, my, my showing off at the moment is probably uh, much more stated. It'll be sort of after dinner talks for medical do's and chants and stuff like that. So uh, uh, I used to do golf clubs, but golf clubs are just off. But uh, yeah, the, the, the medical stuff and, and whatnot, I, I will still do. Oh, that's ideal. We'll have to we'll have to book you in hopefully sometime <laughs> soon. Or we'll we'll come back to hear this. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. And that is the was, just to point out, of course, that I've said I don't tend to overrun anymore. We're now fifty minutes into a fifteen minute talk, so that's all right. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that myself actually. <laughs> Yeah, you, yeah, you've already managed to be the longest part. Edit, edit what you like, edit what you like, Lewis. It's absolutely fine. It's a, as, as long as you don't have me saying anything absolutely outrageous, you can take out as much as you want. <laughs>